So I'll tell you what it was that I would like to change when I was a kid. Church business meetings. Church business meetings. I always noticed that there were people who looked like they enjoyed going to church business meetings and, and not just because they wanted the church to run well or, or because they cared a lot about the church. It seemed like they just liked to fuss publicly. And I used to think, I want to blow up their car or <laughs> something. Because I was a kid, you know, and I had immature thoughts. I, I think, what would make a person want to come to church business meeting and fuss like that? I wasn't even really sure that I saw church business meetings in the Bible like I saw church business meetings when I was a boy. And, you know, we've had, as an adult, I've been a pastor 42 years, and I've had almost all really good church business meetings. Very rarely, very, very rarely have I ever been in a church business meeting that wasn't decent and congenial and fine. There were a few little things every once in a while that weren't good, but, but really, for the most part, I haven't had a bad church business meeting. A few, not too many, but I do still have PTSD from church business meetings as a kid. So if you, if you want to know something about me that's sort of interesting, watch me during a church business meeting because I look all pleasant. Believe me, it's just a sheen of professionalism. That's all it is. Because I'm like, oh my goodness, I just want this to be over with and I want to go home right now. That's exactly what I'm thinking about. Mark, you, uh, you ran the church, you, I think you ran the annual meeting or one of the church business meetings when I had a COVID or, or I, think I, I think I had vertigo or something. And I was in bed watching you run the meeting. I'm like, Mark, I love you, you did a great job. We should, we should do this like this regular. And uh, anyway, as a kid, I just thought, there's gotta be a better way to run the church and this is ridiculous. Honestly, that's what I felt. I, I saw some things that I just thought, well, I won't tell you a lot because then you might be disappointed. But you know, people are people and even Christian people are people and, and they sin and they do weird stuff, dumb things, sometimes even me, but not very often, but sometimes. But when I was a boy, there was a church business meeting and the people disagreed. And, and it was kind of, I don't know if it was evenly divided, but there was definitely a, a group, two groups that really disagreed. And my dad was trying to preside. And I remember at the end of the meeting, my dad said, well, it's time, you know, for us, let's just pray to adjourn. And I was about 10 or 11. And when he said that, all the people on the other side just started talking and kind of hollering and, and they, didn't, they didn't recognize the prayer at all. And I remember as a kid just thinking, I realize you don't agree, but I can't believe that you're talking while we're praying. And as a little boy, I just thought, I hate that. I don't tell you as a big boy, I still hate that. I just hate it. Doesn't happen a lot, but it happens sometimes. I'm gonna belabor that. What should you do when you love Jesus and you love the Bible and you love the church and you love the things of God, but there's something about the church that you just don't think is right and it should be different, what should you do? Or, and, and the Bible is not written only for time, to give us instruction only for times that are ideal, but it's also written for times of intense suffering, uh, conflict, misunderstanding, pressure, difficulty. It's also written for that. The text we're going to study today 
It's a gorgeous text of the Bible. You just heard it read uh, by Dana. A gorgeous, beautiful text of the Bible. And it goes to the heart of what God says the church should be governed like. So when I was a boy, I said to my dad, Dad, there's got to be a better way to do this than the way that we do it with these, you know, with they had the frequent kind of town hall. Not town hall like a good thing, because I understand here in our church, history has been, the town hall idea has been a good thing. It's congenial, friendly conversation. I get that. It, but I'm talking about like bickering, mistreating one another, talking over one another, not being Christian. Every once in a while you see that. And, 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 and I saw some of that as a kid and I've never been able to get out of my mind. And I thought that just can't be the way Jesus wanted his church to run. When I got, I got a little bit older and I ran into a, a, a difficulty like that and, and, and we had misunderstanding like that and I thought this just can't be right. And it was about that time that we had the privilege of, of starting a church. So at that point, it was almost like, okay, if you don't think that they were doing it the right way, now's your chance to do it the right way. And so I took that very seriously. And um, the tendency would be to say, here's a constitution from some other church and how they run it, and we'll do it the way that we're used to. And what we decided to do is try to back up and just go back to the scriptures themselves and just say, what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about how the church should be governed? And we had some theory. We thought maybe it should be governed by the congregation itself, like a large group of people, just kind of like the majority rules. Maybe that's the way it should be. Does the Bible teach that the majority rules the church? Does the Bible teach that? And that was one of the things we had on the table. Maybe we should just like 51% of the congregation is kind of American, sort of. Or is there some kind of representative government? Or maybe in, in some cases there would be a strong personal leader and he would, kind of like Moses, you know, he would like get the baton, the staff of leadership, and then he would just boldly lead the people. He would win their confidence, and in the one city to win their confidence, and he'd overpower them, and he would just be a strong personal leader. Or maybe you could put that in a more benevolent way and just say there's this good, godly, wonderful, singular leader. Does the, in the Bible, it seems there are times when it looks like the group comes together and it has to agree. And there are other times it seems like there is a strong singular leadership. Um, but here's the conclusion that we came to, and this is why we're going to 1 Peter. Uh, this is how we're teaching 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Here's the conclusion that we came to after studying the Bible as carefully as we could. It's just simply this. Here's what I believe on the level of personal conviction. I believe the Bible is extremely plain that the church should be governed by a plurality of elders. I believe the New Testament plainly teaches that the New Testament church should be governed by a plurality of elders. You'll have singular leadership. They may agree somebody among them to preside or to be a common speaker, but he won't have more authority. The scriptures don't teach that. There are examples in the Bible of singular leaders who would rise up for a time. They would be they would be exemplary in their gifting or in their leadership or, or they were verbal or they were outgoing or they were, they were connected culturally with that group for a time. But it's not a biblical mandate that you have a singular leader. You don't see that in the New Testament church. In the New Testament church, there would be controversies that they try to work out and the leaders would confer and they would go to the people and it would seem good to the people. This is an Acts 15 thing. It would seem good to the people, but you don't have a system of 
voting of, of, of um, the majority outvoting the minority in the Bible. It's more like a family having a discussion, coming to a oneness of mind under the direction of a plurality of elders. Uh, Titus, he said, Paul says to Titus, appoint elders in every city over and over and over again. The New Testament teaches a plurality of elders, not one presiding elder, but a group of elders, a plurality of elders. The scriptures teach that. So when I came here, it was delightful to me. The church that I pastored, that I, the church that we founded, we founded with uh, elders. And we, ha we understand I was, I, I was privileged to be asked to primarily to preside to speak, but didn't have more authority than the other elders. That was just my gifting. Uh, and the congregation was listened to, everyone. Uh, it was because that's what godly elders would do. They would imp impose their will on the congregation. They would listen, they would pray, they would know the flock. And that's what they did. And so when I came to this church, some of you were in the room, uh, when I was privileged to come and interview here uh, about uh, five years ago, um, and they asked me what I believed, I told them, and the church is covered by a plurality of elders. Now listen to what, so in other words, here, here's what I'm driving at. I know this is gonna be kind of an informal talk today because this is so near to my heart and so dear to my heart, and I spent so many years in preparation of these ideas that I didn't want to sermonize today. I want to be very careful not to sermonize. I actually just want to speak from my heart, from the truth, teaching what's here and teaching you what I believe the scriptures teach so, so to the end of this, that this could be uh, applied to other areas where you have something in the church or something about Christendom in general or about the church that you think, and maybe you're a young person or maybe you're not, then I would suggest this. One tendency is to say, I resign, I'm out, I'm out of here. Uh, look, it's not the way it should be. These things ought not to so to be, I'm out of here, I'm gone. I'm not gonna hang around, I'm not gonna be part of this. There's a version of that where you go, I'm not out of here because there's some other cultural factors, but I'm kind of, you know, and if you're sitting in the back row, I'm, I'm not picking on you today. I'm, I'm in the back row. I'm in, I'm, on, I'm, I'm in the back row on the inside. In other words, I'm, I'm not really going to participate. I'm just going to kind of be present, but I'm, but I'm really, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a sense of resignation. I'm not going to really participate. I'm not going to really lean in. I'm not going to really be involved. I'm not going to really uh, be a part of that, but, I, but I'll just be present. And, and I've heard pastor's kids say this often. Some pastor's kids whose last name are Pierpont even, will say, I've seen how people act at church and I know Jesus and I love him, but I don't wanna get involved and get in trouble. So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna come late and leave early and I'm not gonna get involved. And my heart just breaks because those Pierpont kids are gonna meet Jesus someday. And give an answer to the chief shepherd who gave his blood for the church. And I would want to say, I love your church. I love what you love. I serve what you served. I was involved. So there's the resignation. There's the rebellion. And some would be like, I'm against this. I hate it. I'm against it. I'm going to. And now it's a. It's a feeding frenzy on the church now. Anybody want a book printed? Just say, put together a bunch of bad experiences with the church and you get published. 
It's just like, it's just open season now in pastors and churches. And of course, some pastors have done really stupid things. And church people have done really stupid things. We've got to, we, we, this is going to end happy, so hang in there. But, but, but my point is, a person could say, I'm out, I resign. Or they could say, I'm here, but I'm really not engaged. Or a person could say, I need to stay by the microphone, right? Um, sorry. Uh, or a person could say, I'm here, but I'm really not engaged. Or a person could say, this whole thing is bad, and I want to blow it up and rebel. Here's what I want to suggest. The scriptures teach, though. It, don't, be, don't have a spirit of resignation. Don't have a spirit of, re, of, of rebellion. Have a spirit of reform. I will stay involved, and I will help make the changes that need to be made. If they're doing it wrong, I'm going to help them do it right. It doesn't mean that it's going to be ever perfect, but I would, I would recommend to stay engaged. Now, having said that, here we are now. The, the letter of Peter's written here to people that are in uh, a difficulty. Pressures are going to come. This is going to tend to create division and difficulty and hardship. And he's going to give a key element now. He's going to say in this, during a time like this, here's a major thing that you need. He doesn't say you need a church constitution. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you need a church covenant. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you need a campaign to raise more money and build a fancier building. He doesn't say that. Isn't it interesting what he says? He says this. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for a shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. I love the simplicity of the New Testament. It doesn't have a three-ring binder full of policies. It, you know, this can be helpful, but it doesn't have, it's not a three-ring binder of policies. The church of the living God was based on Witnesses of this resurrection who went and appointed elders in every city and taught the Bible. And those elders, godly men, this qualification is given in 1 Timothy and Titus, godly men that were men of character and able to teach various giftings. They would preside over the church and a church in a time of happiness and joy needs godly elders. A church in a time of difficulty and heartache needs godly elders. A church in a time of suffering needs godly elders. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is pointing out a church needs godly elders. And, and then it gives the, these qualifications. They need, and that's why I call my sermon today, Good Shepherds in Bad Times. Good Shepherds in Bad Times. And in case you don't know this, and if you hang around here, you already know this is true about how I feel about our elders and about our deacons. And our church has elders and deacons. The scriptures teach a church should have elders and deacons. And the scriptures clearly teach the qualifications of elders. You can read them in 1 Timothy and Titus. And their qualifications, they're men. And then in, in 1 Timothy, it lists also the women 
and these may be men or women that are deacons. And in our church, we have men and women deacons that preside over areas of the church, and they do it very well. The deacons work together in a thing called the advisory council, and each deacon is over a team, and the teams function in areas of the church to make things work. And the elders meet officially once a month, and, and actually in prayer every, every Saturday, and they watch over the flock, and, and, and what we have by God's grace at Bethel, I take no personal credit for this at all because it existed when I showed up, is a plurality of godly elders. I think, Pastor Leo, you're here, and I think during your ministry here, you instituted and led the church to institute an elder, a, a biblical eldership. I, I know that Pastor Walt, my predecessor, he, he I think he, a, a major contribution of his ministry was that he had a relational elders training where a number of the men in the church met for, I think, two and a half years, two years, and did some intense training about what it meant to be an elder. And this was theological, this was doctrinal, this was personal. So when I show up and I meet with the elders, the elders aren't wrangling over things like the color of the carpet, and they're not bickering over things, they're not ego-driven, they're caring for the state of the flock. They're, they're literally meeting every Saturday morning and they're naming your names and they're praying for you and they're caring about you. That's happening every Saturday morning when the men meet. So I love it that I've come as late in life as I am to a church that's, that's this way and I had nothing to do with it except I got the privilege of stepping into it. And so just so you know, before we go on, uh, this isn't a corrective sermon. This is just a celebration of when I was a kid, what I saw and what I thought should be corrected and how I believe it should have been corrected, not having a kind of a union hall bickering thing and not having a power play of a few, not having one domineering leader, but having a godly plurality of godly elders that confer together and pray together and help guide the church together. And this is what you have here. It isn't perfect, but it is good, very good. It isn't perfect here, but it's very, very healthy. Uh, and I'm so grateful, Pastor Leo, I don't want to embarrass you here, and so my last personal reference. But one day we were, Pastor Leo's one of our elders as well, and one day we were in an elders meeting a couple years ago, and we walked out of the elders meeting, the men were all, it was a good meeting, and all the guys had been sharing and having input and whatever, and, and we walked out, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, not a bad egg in a bunch. I'm like, you're so right. Remember saying that? I'm like, you're so right. That was the feeling, like, you're right. Not a bad egg in a bunch. Since then, we did bring one guy in who's kind of, no, I'm kidding, that's a, that's a joke. Not a bad egg in a bunch, he said. So just so you know, you know, I'm not trying to correct anything here, but, I, but I've been looking forward to this text because it's, I believe that what we're doing is certainly not perfect, but it is healthy, and it is, it is happening. Now, now, let me just give you then these five, five or six things, qualities that, that, are, that, that we should be aware of here. And, but, but my overall goal, big idea here, overall goal in terms of application, the truth of the Bible is very clear. During hard times, during good times, especially during hard times, you need to be in a church where you're governed by a plurality of godly elders. You want that. That's what you want. And suffering, that's in, in suffering and in good times, you want to be there. So that's the, the key of this text. But by application too, I would just say this too. Can we broaden this in application and just say, and if you see something that need, that's a little different than you wish that it was, don't rebel, don't leave, don't go sit in the back row, but be engaged and make it more biblical. Reform, tweak it, 
Be a part of things. Let your ideas be known. See, okay, so these, these six different things as we walk through this text. Number one, a church should be primarily governed by a plurality of godly qualified elders. I've made that point. Leaders should be plural and not singular. Singular, singular leadership is important, and there's a place for it, but the Bible doesn't codify it like a command. It occurs because it naturally occurs anywhere. It's like if you're on a team and a person would be like more outgoing or, or they'd be more of a leader. Or there'd be, for whatever reason, there are times when one person for a time may preside. But it's like a, among equals. And the scriptures don't, don't say, make sure you have a singular leader. But the scriptures do say, appoint elders in every city. Uh, and, then, and then so the congregation is important. And there's a place for the congregation, of course. And the New Testament teaches that. But the, but, the, but the church should be governed by a plurality of elders. Deacons are vital to the function of the church. The scriptures teach that. And every church should have deacons that faithfully serve, but the church should be governed by a plurality of elders. The, the, the New Testament word is often rule. Uh, but, so in other words, we're not lacking for authority. You always want to know, take me to your leader, right? If you're a young person, here's a major truth that you need to know in your life, and that is wherever you go, say, who's the leader? Take me to your leader. Whose authority am I under? I, even if they're a rogue, I need to know it. You know, I just need to know who's in charge. It's super important. Smart people figure this out. They go, who's in charge here? Who are my leaders? Because you get direction from leaders. You get protection from leaders. You get warning from leaders. You get provision from leaders. You get God's direction through leaders. Super important that you know who your leaders are. And so it isn't a church. It's like, who are my leaders? That, that would be important there. And so, the, so uh, you know, all these things are important to churches, but the church should be governed by a plurality of leaders. Now, some of the elders in the, in the New Testament church uh, were remunerated and some were not. In First Timothy, it says those that labor in the word and doctrine are worthy of double honor. There's uh, examples throughout the New Testament of gifts or, or even living of the gospel. At one point, Paul says those who preach the gospel live of the gospel. So it's appropriate for sometimes for an elder to have an income, which is that's true with me, and so we're super grateful for that. But the Bible also teaches that there will sometimes be elders that, don't, that, that aren't remunerated. Uh, that's the First Timothy passage that I was talking about. Um, and yet the, the Bible never teaches that they're different in authority. So in other words, like in our church, for instance, my authority isn't greater than any other elder. Um, they're nice to me. They listen to me because I hang around here a lot and they've asked me to be their lead pastor. Um, but I, I don't want to say too much because I want to embarrass fellows publicly, but often and, and really when, when I come to an elders meeting, I have ideas and thoughts and I've thought things through, especially if I've thought things through well and I have ideas, then they're very respectful about those ideas and they often will take those ideas and often implement those ideas. They sometimes not at all. Uh, there have been a few times when I've had an idea, Chris, what I do personally is we have a chairman of our elders, uh, uh, our Neil Veit is the chairman right now, and he and I would meet, and I normally wouldn't, I don't think I ever have, uh, Eddie, this is true, when you were the chairman of the elders, we don't go to the elders until we meet and we kind of know what we're going to say. And so sometimes they're going to say yes to us, and sometimes they're going to say, well, maybe, I remember one particular time, there was a decision that we had to make, and I kind of thought this over here wasn't a big thing. It was just like I just thought this. This is what this is what I'm going to recommend over here. This, you know, and so I and so when I when we got there, we both agreed. Neil and I both agreed. Now nah, we're probably going to lean this way over here. And so we went and we had the meeting, and we said we kind of think this. And immediately the elders began to say, "Well, we think this," and it was like not. It was the other way, and we looked at each other and smiled. We go, "Okay, 
Well, it was obvious that their four or five of the elders had a real strong sense this would be a better direction. So that's the direction that we took. Uh, this gives you a little bit of an idea of what that might look like in terms of decision making and so forth. What, what I'm getting at is that when you read the New Testament, you can do it yourself, and you see wherever it talks about elders, you notice that it looks like there's more than one of them. And it looks like they agree together, and that's how they govern the church. And it looks like they listen to the congregation, and they pay attention, and it looks like they're selfless. And it looks like they're not like power brokers that are doing what they want for their personal good, but they're trying to watch for the state of the flock, and they have something else really big in mind, and we'll get to that later. But so, I believe the New Testament teaches, I believe this as strong as I believe the virgin birth. I believe the New Testament teaches a church should be governed by plurality of elders. Second, elders are shepherds, are bishops. So this is kind of interesting. Sometimes in a church governance structure, some say, well, that's the bishop, but this guy's a pastor. And, and you understand when people do that, then they're doing something extra biblical. Because according to the New Testament, the, the words are used interchangeably. So you have like an agrarian culture, they might say the poimen, the shepherd word, is used for people that would have that orientation, like the pastor, shepherd. So when you call somebody a shepherd, he's a pastor, that's the word. And in this word, this, this um, passage, all three of these terms are used interchangeably. It says, and, and take the oversight, and that's the episkopos, that's the bishop word. So the bishop word, and the elder word, and the pastor, shepherd word, are all used in this passage. This is the only one that does that. They're all used in this passage to describe the same office. So if you want to call me Bishop Ken from now on, feel free. Uh, you can also call Jerry Bishop Jerry because that's, that's, he's, a, he's an elder. What I'm getting at is not to change those names, our common use of those names. But I don't know if it's like this. If, if God went to a particular culture, maybe it would be he's the chief of the church. Maybe it would be he's the coach. I don't know. But I do know that in the New Testament, the term bishop is used, and the term elder is used, and the term pastor or shepherd is used, and they're interchangeable. So number one, church should be governed by a plurality of elders. Two, elders are shepherds, are bishops. Three, godly leaders are willing, not grudging. They're not under compulsion, but willingly. So you, you should, so this will help you too, gentlemen. If you ever ask to be an elder and you're not willing, don't do it. Just don't do it. We say, do you want to? No, I don't want to. Okay, then don't do it because you should be willing. Somebody says, how do I know if I should be a pastor? Well, you should want to be a pastor. If a, this is First Timothy. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Number one, you should desire it. When I was a kid, I remember asking somebody, how do I know if I should be a pastor? And they say, well, one of the things is you'll want to be. And I go, well, I, I, want to, I want to be. And I, since I was 14, I have strongly had a strong personal desire to be a pastor. Not all pastors are preaching pastors like we see in our pulpits, any whatever. But the New Testament, the New Testament teaching on an elder, though, again, a person should desire that. So he's willing and he's not grudging. It's like, oh, I guess I have to do this. That's the third thing. So the New Testament church should be governed by a plural of elders. Second, elders are shepherds, are bishops. Third, godly leaders are willing, not grudging. Fourth, godly leaders are willing to sacrifice and they do not take dishonest gain. And so it's, the Bible says it's not for shameful gain. I'm driving to Ohio with my dad one day, and we were going to his brother, my uncle Bill's funeral. 
and my mother wasn't able to go, and so I went over and I picked up my dad. I created a little playlist on, on, on Spotify of songs that would play underneath of our conversation, and I thought about questions I would ask my dad. It's rare for me to get hours alone with uh, my dad or with my mom and just to talk with them, and, and I thought, well, this is gonna be a rare, rare time. We're gonna drive to his brother's funeral, and it will be sweet to spend time with him, and I'll ask him questions. And so we drove along that day, and I asked my dad questions. And one of the things my dad said to me that day was what he does when people give him a gift in the church. He says, you know, Ken, sometimes if I do a funeral, people will share an honorarium with me. Or sometimes if I do a wedding, people will share an honorarium with me. And I, he goes, well, normally I turn that down if I can. And I said, that's where we're different. Just kidding. Um, he said, well, it's not really different. But anyway, he, he said that I turn it down. He goes, I tell people, I'm your pastor, and, and you've already paid me, and so I'm just happy to do this. He says, but normally they still insist on giving you an honorarium. He says, so I'm always grateful for it. He said, but well, here's what I do. He says, we, I bring it home, and your mother and I sit down at the dining room table, and we open it up, and then we stop and we pray, and we thank God for it, for it. And then your mother makes out a deposit slip for the bank. And then we write a thank you note. And he said, then we put the thank you note in the mail. And then after we put the thank you note in the mail, we put the check in the bank. But he said, we never put the check in the bank before we put a thank you note in the mail. When he said that, I wanted to stop the car and go, Dad, tell me 50 more things like that, and I will write a great book. <laughs> Literally. I started writing a book called Old Pastor Tips. The working title is Old Pastor Tips, and I'm gathering stuff like that. I thought, wow, that was powerful. And I reminded myself, wow, be grateful for whatever you're given. And the Bible teaches that elders are, are careful about how they use money. Uh, they're, they're, they don't have shameful gain. That's number four. The fifth thing I notice is godly leaders are exemplary. So their influence is primary. They're, 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 they're primarily influential and not controlling in, you know, in the bad sense of the word. You know, for instance, if you have a little child and they go to dart across the street and there's a truck coming, you should control them immediately. Grab them, force them to come back, right? But if they're, fe if they're 17 and, they're not, and you can't just say, hey, stop somebody missed something in the parenting there. You didn't, you failed to influence them. And the scriptures are very interesting here. And they don't teach that a, that a elders should be dominant. They teach, the, they, they teach specifically that elders should not be domineering. Their leadership should not be controlling, but it should be influential. And then, I'm going to talk about this in detail next week. And, I, and it's a little diversion, but an important one. In detail, I want to talk about the difference between control in a bad sense, and influence. But what Peter is reminding the people is good leaders are not controlling, they're influential. Good leaders aren't domineering, but they're powerfully influential. How many of you would love to know the secret of the difference between being domineering and controlling and being powerfully influential. I mean, think about this just for a minute. I'll just tell you this to whet your appetite for next week when I share, share this. The difference between controlling behavior and influencing the heart, okay? If I control the behavior, it looks good outwardly. When the elders meet up here, we all wear blue suits. It's the rule. 
I'd be like, oh, wow, that's really impressive. Yeah, right. um, it's temporary. You know, like you're not going to go out tomorrow with your blue suit on because we made you wear one today. Um, that's controlling behavior. But influencing the heart is lasting. Controlling behavior usually requires your presence. But influencing behavior does <coughs> require your presence. Uh, controlling behavior requires torque or leverage or the threat of removing food or shelter or, or something or money. But, but influencing requires weight of character, convicting power, truth to, to appeal to the conscience. Uh, it, controlling is God's prerogative, influences our responsibility. Controlling is often done for selfish reasons. Influence is often done for the good of the one that, that's, that's being influenced. Uh, I, can, I can go on. One of the things about controlling is it can create an illusion of godliness and foster hypocrisy, but influence is different. Influence is what the Bible talks about as a virtue, and it says to the, about the elders, godly leaders could get faster results. Leaders could get faster results that look better for a short period of time if they manipulate behaviors and control the way people act. But the New Testament doesn't teach that kind of leadership. So in other words, a godly leader's influence may look a little messier initially. Let me give you a quick example because you look a little bit like you want me to stop or something. Um, I'll tell you this real quick. So youth group at a church, youth leaders are like, we're not going to have these kids listen to this kind of bad music. So we need to influence them to listen to control, make sure they listen to good music. So the leaders go, no bad music on the trip. Like, well, that makes sense. Okay, you can't bring your music on the trip. You know, so only people that brought music on the trip were the leaders then. Uh, and, and no iPhones. The only people that had iPhones were the leaders. The, the kids didn't have iPhones, just the leaders. Kids didn't have music, just the leaders. Now, another way to do that would be let everybody, let all get a shuttle and bring their iPhone. If you're on your iPhone, they can be on their iPhone. I know what you're thinking. I think that's not good. Let them listen to whatever music they want to listen to. You're like, well, they might listen to bad music. Yeah, well, they, they might very well listen to bad music. Now you would have something to talk about, wouldn't you? You'd actually be dealing with the way things really are rather than the way you're trying to manipulate things into being. It's a thought. It's just a thought. Then That's what I thought. In other words, uh, a godly leadership might look messier. Uh, here is an exemplary shepherd. He's, this is what Peter's passing on, and that is be examples of the flock and don't domineer, don't control them but influence them. We'll, we'll talk more about that next week uh, because it's so important. It'll help with maybe parenting too. And six, godly leaders always serve with Christ in mind. Now here's the heart of the text. And this is the take home. I take home. This is beautiful. At the, in, in this text, verse four and verse one, the brackets of this text appeal to the same thing. Why we do all this stuff? Why would I obey the elders? Why would I put myself under the elders? Why would I want to be a godly elder? Why would, why, why is this important? Well, it's because of Jesus. Notice how he starts this. He says in, in, in uh, I'm sorry, in verse 1, he says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. This is Peter, who's an apostle. He could have pulled a little bit more rank. He goes, you know, you're an elder, I'm an elder. And then he says, and I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. And we are... He says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So what's he doing? He said, I want you to be a, I want you to shepherd the flock. 
I want you to shepherd the flock. You need to shepherd the flock. They're, they're suffering. And remember, we saw the suffering of Jesus. I am a witness of Jesus' suffering. So he appeals backward to Jesus. Why do we do what we do? Because of Jesus. You're a mom. You're a leader because of Jesus. You're a dad. You're a leader because of Jesus. Keep that in mind. It keeps you from being selfish and, and controlling and, and having bad motives in your leadership. It keeps you to be a sweet elder with a good spirit. Like, only got this role because I'm here to help you follow him. And we saw him writhing on the cross, suffering and dying, spittle running down his face. And the, we saw this glory, and there will be glory revealed. And then look at the end of the text. And I, I love this, of course. Uh, the end is verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears you will receive an unfading crown of glory. I want to talk to you directly if you're one of our elders, very precious elders today. And that is, thank you for coming to the elders meetings. Thank you for praying for the flock. Thank you for being a good elder. You will receive an unfading crown of glory someday from Jesus Christ. Thank you for doing that you'll receive an unfading crown of glory from Jesus Christ someday. My son Wesley didn't know if he should be a pastor because his dad was a pastor. He wasn't sure what he should do. He's a really good plumber right now. But when he was trying to figure it out, one thing I noticed, everybody who had Wes work for him would say, man, that kid doesn't ever stop. He is such a hard worker. He is a great worker. Everybody would say that. He would preach, and he would do a good job. He's verbal. He rapped. He wrote rap lyrics, really good rap lyrics. If there's such a thing. He wrote good ones. Um, really biblical rhymes and such. So he went away to college thinking, well, maybe I should, you know, because I'm a pastor, I guess maybe I should look at being a pastor. So he went away to college, and the reports I got back from his preparation to be a pastor at college were not encouraging. <laughs> Let's just draw the line on that. Say they weren't, didn't sound like that was going very well. One time he came home and I said to him, Wes, everybody who, everybody I talked to about you says you're a really diligent worker. And that's, we know the world, that makes the world go around being a good worker. So I said, my suggestion to you is that you do something, that you work, but that you do something they pay you a lot of money for. If you're going to work hard, work hard getting paid a lot of money. I know that's what I thought would be a good good. So get into a trade where they pay you more like an electrician or a plumber or something like that. I don't know how you do that, I said. I'm a pastor. I don't know how you do it, but I would say, and, and God allowed him to do that. But, but in, the, in the time when he's trying to figure it out, he was at college, and I don't think he's doing that well. But he's a sweet boy, and he loved to have breakfast at Bob Evans. And he was a couple hours away, two or three hours away. And I thought, there's something important I need to tell him. I'm going to tell you the same thing right now. So I called Wesley on the phone, and I said, hey, Wesley, I love you. I said, can I buy you breakfast at Bob Evans? And he goes, yeah. I go, okay, you can tell Daniel, his brother, it was up there at college too. I said, you can tell Daniel, he can come along too, but I'm coming to talk to you. He goes, wait, what is it, Dad? I go, well, it's important. So I'll tell you when I get there. I don't do that very often, but every once in a while I reserve the right to manipulate their emotions like that. And I'm like, okay, I'll tell you when I get there. He's like, really? I go, this is super important. I just want to look you in the eye 
It isn't bad, but I need to look you in the eye. This is super important. He goes, okay. So we came to breakfast and we sat around a round table and we ate a big hearty breakfast and, and we got it all done and pushed the food back. And I said, look at me, Wesley, look at me. I want to tell you something, this is important. What, Dad? I go, I don't care if you're a pastor. I do not care. I do not care. But someday I want you to be an elder. I want you to open your Bible. I want you to look what it says about what an elder is. Someday I want you to be an elder. I want you to be a godly man. I want you to be a good man. I want you to be involved in the church. I want you to pray. I want you to try to win people to Christ. I want you to be a giver. I want you to be in the church and faithful in the church. I want you to be an elder. God's the one who decides exactly where we find ourselves, a deacon or an elder or a servant of some kind, what our label is or whatever. But I appeal to you the same way, and that is encouraging us from this gorgeous text. Jesus suffered for us, and one day he's going to come back, the chief shepherd, and he's going to give crowns of reward to those of us who served him in any way. And to the shepherds, the crown of unfading crown of glory, but to all of us, a crown. You wouldn't want to just sit in the back row, would you? You wouldn't want to just resign yourself to like, well, I'll hang around the outside, but I'm not going to get involved. You wouldn't want to rebel against God's good work. You'd want to be engaged in it, God's work. You'd want to serve in that. You want to be faithful in that. And uh, I'd like to ask you to stand with me today.